Be seated. Good morning. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chase. I'm uh, one of the pastors or elders on staff here at Desert Springs, and we are continuing in our series in the Gospel according to Matthew. So if you have your Bible, please open that up to Matthew. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen behind me, but we would love to get one to you so that you can start reading it on your own. You know, as we were thinking about all the things that have happened in this room over the last 20 years, I was thinking, how many books of the Bible have we preached through line by line and verse by verse? And we're going to do the same thing this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, continuing in this study. So we're in Matthew chapter 12, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 21. Let me read this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is the word of the Lord. So as I was studying this passage this week, and uh, I sat down with some of our other pastors over tacos, and we were talking about what, uh, what it was that uh, the Lord was trying to teach us in this passage, I was, I was really just struck again, all over again, by just how amazing the Gospel of Matthew is. Particularly in how Matthew can take uh, these, these seemingly straightforward stories and, and just pile them up with these multiple layers of meaning and significance, with these like interlocking allusions. And when you start pulling on any one of the threads in these stories that he's telling you, you begin to understand just how complex and profound all of this really is. It's an incredible book. 
And in our passage this morning, we're going to see that Matthew is weaving together here many themes that have already been developing throughout his gospel. We'll see the theme of Christ's relationship to the law and how he fulfills the law, the greater righteousness that defines the kingdom of heaven. We'll see the theme of the identity of who Jesus is and the gentle and lowly heart of the Messiah. In this passage, we will see again the theme of Christ fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and how that fulfillment was for the whole world. It has the Gentiles, the nations in view. And in this passage and in this whole chapter, chapter 12, we especially see the widening gap of responses to Jesus. Some people are drawn to Jesus. They come to him for mercy and healing, and yet others are repulsed by this very same Jesus. And they oppose him to the point that they want to kill him. So this is a fascinating passage. It's rich, it's deep, it's full of surprises, as we'll see. Now, if you're taking notes and keeping up with uh, what we're going through, we're going to look at this in three sections. And we're going to spend most of our time in the first section. That first point is going to be a little bit longer than the other two. So we'll begin this first point with what's called a Sabbath controversy in verses 1 through 8. So that's your first point, a Sabbath controversy. Look again at verse 1. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, I remember the first time that I ever read this passage, and I thought the not lawful thing that the disciples were doing was stealing somebody's grain. Right? I mean, they're plucking somebody else's grain. How dare they? That's, that's not what's going on here. Actually, God's law required that farmers not harvest their crop all the way to the edges of their field. They were supposed to leave the edges of their field uh, unharvested so that poor people and hungry people, like the disciples, could pluck that grain. It was, it was a way of taking care of the poorest in their society. If you want to learn more about that, that's in Leviticus chapter 23. It's called the gleanings. So the disciples were, were totally fine to be plucking somebody else's grain. The problem was that they were plucking somebody else's grain on the Sabbath. That's the problem here. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you're new to uh, Christianity, and you don't know what the Sabbath is, the Sabbath was the, the Israelites or the Jewish day of rest. That word Sabbath, it's a Hebrew word that means something like to cease or to stop. The implication of that is to rest, to take a break, to stop working. And, and this was a command that God gave to the people of Israel when he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, right after he brought them out of Egypt where they had been slaves for more than 400 years. So this is a command that God gave to Israel that they were supposed to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, Saturday, they were supposed to stop working. Now what's really neat is is this Sabbath, this command, was the sign of that covenant that God was making with Israel. So if you've been with us in our study through Genesis, you remember that when God made a covenant with Noah, there was a sign, the rainbow in the sky. And then when God made a covenant with Abraham, there was a sign, circumcision. Well, when God made this covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, when Moses gave them the Ten Commandments, the sign of that covenant was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a 
special reminder to the people of Israel that they were in a unique relationship with God that had covenant obligations attached to it. And the Sabbath was also something that distinguished Israel from all of the other nations around them who weren't in that special relationship with God. So on the Sabbath day, no work could be done. And you couldn't make anyone else work for you. Not even the foreigners or sojourners who were happening to be in Israel at that time. Not even they could work. Not even the animals could work on the Sabbath. Everyone had to stop. You couldn't cook food. You couldn't start a fire. You couldn't even pick up sticks. And if anyone in Israel failed to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, if anyone in Israel worked on the Sabbath day, they were to be put to death. And that's kind of weird, right? Like, that's a weird commandment. Why would God command Israel to rest? Because they needed it. They needed a break. God knew that they needed it. So we should understand the Sabbath as this beautiful, generous gift from God. It was a vacation. It was for their refreshment. It was for their relief. And think about how incredible that, that, that they were formerly slaves They hadn't gotten a break for 400 years. And then God worked into the very fabric of their relationship and their society with God one day a week that they were supposed to stop from working. So it was a gift. Who doesn't want a break? Not only that, but it was an expression of trust in their God. Once a week, the people of Israel had to let go of their efforts and trust that God would provide for them. They had to stop worrying about what they would eat or drink, these things that the other nations worried about. They had to just stop and trust that God would work for them so that they could take a rest. So the Sabbath was a good thing. It was meant to be a good gift for Israel. But the time, by, by the time that we come to Jesus in the first century, their understanding of the Sabbath and what it meant to observe the Sabbath, it had gotten twisted. It had gotten distorted. By the time of the first century when the Gospel of Matthew is taking place, the Jews had started adding all of these extra rules and regulations to the Sabbath command. These things that weren't in God's law, they were, they were kind of on top of God's law, just so that they could make sure that they didn't accidentally break the Sabbath. Now, there's, there's a lot of historical reasons for that, and we won't get into that this morning, but as we like to say around here, what the Pharisees and the Jews were doing at this time is they were going above the line of scripture. They were adding more to God's word than what God's word actually said. And so by this time, their definitions of what it meant to do work, to work on the Sabbath, it had gotten so strict and so fastidious and, and at times even absurd that this thing that was meant to be a generous gift to the nation of Israel had turned into this horrible burden. They're constantly worrying about breaking the law of God. In the situation with Jesus' disciples, this was a classic example. So the Pharisees see Jesus walking with his hungry disciples and they're walking along this grain field and they're plucking grain, they're eating it. And what the Pharisees are saying is, look, they're harvesting and preparing food which you are not supposed to do on the Sabbath. You are breaking the Sabbath. That's what they accuse Jesus and his disciples of doing in verse two. Do you see how silly that is? How extreme that is? How overly strict 
that is. So they accuse Jesus. Your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath, and Jesus responds. And I think Jesus' response is one of the first big surprises that we see in this passage. Because they came to Jesus with this, this legal argument. But Jesus doesn't respond with a legal argument of his own. He doesn't dispute with them about the teaching of these various rabbis who had helped develop all of these extra rules and regulations. He doesn't go into that. He doesn't even go back to Exodus 20 where the command to keep the Sabbath was first given. He doesn't say like, look guys, let's open up our Bibles to Exodus and I'll show you. It doesn't say anything about plucking grain. You're being ridiculous. He doesn't do that. He could do that, but he doesn't do that. No, what Jesus does is he gives this way deeper and more complex and more glorious answer to their accusation. Not by getting into a legal debate with them, but by cutting right through their legal debate by telling them more about the Messiah. So you could say that Jesus is responding to their legal questions with a Christological answer. And it's fascinating. So look in verse three, he says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. This is referring to a story in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. There David, the Lord's anointed, is on the run from King Saul, who is trying to kill him. And David's got this small group of men with him, and they, they had to run away in a hurry. And they left without any provisions. They didn't have any food. And eventually they come to the place where the tabernacle was, the, the temporary temple of God at that time. And they go to the priest there and they say, we're starving. We need some food. And the priest says, we don't have anything here except for the consecrated bread that goes in the tabernacle. The bread of the presence that's set apart to sit in the tabernacle and the bread that the, book of, the law of Moses is very clear, only the priest's can eat. So they're in kind of a conundrum there. The priest says, this is the only bread that we have, and he gives it to them. Jesus says, David goes into the house and takes it, and they eat this consecrated bread that according to the Levitical law, it was not lawful for anyone but the priests to eat. And God says it's okay. David is never rebuked for eating this bread. The priest is never rebuked for letting David eat this bread. And here Jesus says it was okay that they ate the bread, even though it was unlawful, as he says in verse 4. So he gives them that example. And then in verse 5, he just gives them a different example. Verse 5, he says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Now, he's using the word profane kind of ironically or sarcastically. What he means is that even though everybody else in Israel was supposed to stop working on the seventh day, on Saturday, the priests still had to fulfill all of their temple duties. So they were working all day on Saturday, even as everybody else in the nation was resting. They were spending that whole day butchering animals and offering sacrifices and lighting incense and circumcising babies and doing all of the stuff that was required of them to maintain this special relationship between the people and God. So Jesus gives them these two Old Testament examples in response to their legal argument. And then if he stopped right there, you know, well, then we would say, okay, what, what's he kinda, what are the parallels that he's drawing there? And I think I see what you're doing there, Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps on going. And in verse 6, what he says gets even more surprising and, frankly, shocking. Okay, look down at verse 6. Then Jesus says, I tell you 
something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now you gotta stay with me here. This is, like I said, this is dense. Jesus' argument is kind of complicated. But what he's, what he's doing here, what he's trying to do for the Pharisees is he's trying to reframe their understanding of things in, in two big ways. He's trying to reframe their understanding of two things. The first is their understanding of the purpose of the law of God. And the second is their understanding of who Jesus really is. So those are the two things he's trying to help them see with this argument he's making. So first, he's trying to reframe their understanding of the very purpose of God's law. He's trying to help them see that the law of God was good. And it was meant to do good for other people. David and his disciples were hungry, legitimately, and they had nothing to eat when they came to the priest. And it would have been wrong for the priest to say, well, well, guys, you know what? We've got these 12 loaves of bread right here, but it's only for priests, so get out of here. Go starve. That would have been wrong, Jesus is saying. That's why he quotes from the book of Hosea, which Kelly read for us this morning. Hosea 6, there God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the Hebrew, it's steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And you know what? This is actually the second time that Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. Do you have a favorite Bible verse that you've got memorized that just like seems to apply in every situation that you're in? Jesus seems to really like Hosea 6.6. 6. I think we should pay attention to that. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What God is saying there through the prophet Hosea is, look, I don't want your rigid, legalistic observance of the law. I don't want you to just go through the motions and offer sacrifices. I want you to love me. And I want you to love me by loving others. If you're offering sacrifices and you're being really uptight about keeping all the rules, but you're not showing mercy to people who are in need, well, then you're not really keeping the rules. You're actually misunderstanding the purpose of the rules themselves. God's rules were not given to be a burden. They were supposed to be a blessing. They were for the good of the people. Even the Sabbath itself was meant to be a gift, a day of relief for Israel. In Mark's version of this same story, Jesus concludes this section by saying this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is for you. But the Pharisees had gotten that all backwards. They had turned what was meant to be a blessing into a burden because they cared more about the self-righteous observance of the law, being able to say to their own credit that they followed all of the rules and made all of the other people follow the rules. They cared more about that than the good of the people that the law was meant to serve. So with this argument, Jesus is really getting to what's going on in their hearts. Do you see that? This is really, if you think about it, the, the inverse argument that he was making in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about various kinds of sin, and he's saying those sins aren't, aren't just the outward acts of those sin, but that, that, that sin begins in your heart. 
Hey, it's not just enough to not commit adultery. If you're lusting in your heart, then, then you're sinning. You're breaking God's law. Well, this is just kind of the, the other side of that, that Jesus is saying doing good is not just doing good outwardly, but it's being good in your heart. It's having a heart like God's, which is a heart of mercy and compassion. So that's how he's reframing their understanding of the purpose of the law. But then he's also, like I said, he's also reframing their understanding of who he himself is, of who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the son of man, he says, and the son of God. This is what his argument is that he's making. He's saying, look, if it was okay for David to give consecrated bread to his men that are with him and remain guiltless, What he's saying is, how much more is it okay for me, David's greater son, the Messiah, to give whatever I want to my disciples? They can eat whenever they want to because I am the one that David was looking forward to. In the same way, he says, look, if the priests can work on the temple, work in the temple on the Sabbath without breaking the law, well, how much more the great high priest? Or really what he says is, how much more the one who's greater than the temple itself That's what he says, right? Something greater than the temple is here. What's the implication? And it's me. He's the true temple. He's the real dwelling place of God with his people. So if the Levitical priests are free to serve in that old temple on the Sabbath, well, then these disciples, these new royal priests, well, how much more can they serve the greater temple on the Sabbath and remain Guiltless. And like I said, this is meant to be a shocking statement. Who would say this about themselves if they were just a man? I'm greater than the temple. But if he's God, it's as shocking as what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill the law of God. But that's what he's doing here. Do you see that? That's what he means when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. All of this has to do with that argument that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Everything in the old covenant, all of that law of Moses, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The temple, the animal sacrifices, the dietary laws, the priesthood, even the Sabbath. These are all things that point forward to the Messiah And once he has arrived, the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, therefore, don't let anybody pass judgment on you, Christians, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They were a shadow, but the real deal is here in Jesus. And for what it's worth, for this reason, I believe that we as Christians no longer need to keep a Sabbath. Okay, there's, there's different opinions about this, but I think what Paul is saying here is that the Sabbath was something that just had to do with Israel. It was just something that had to do with that Mosaic law. And now that Christ has come, we don't have to keep a Sabbath. We don't have to keep Saturday as a day where we don't do any work. We don't have to keep Sunday as a day where we don't do any work. We don't have to keep any day 
as a day where we don't have to do any work. Now, that doesn't mean that we as human beings don't need regular rhythms of rest and refreshment in our lives. And I don't think that even means that there's not something to a weekly rhythm of worship. We gather on the Lord's Day and a a regular seven-day habit, but I don't think that that's a Sabbath. I don't think that we need to keep a Sabbath. But we do rest. We don't rest from our physical labor one day a week, but we do rest from our spiritual labor every day in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we rest in Christ today and every day, we look forward to the eternal rest that he has secured for us forever. That's the point that Matthew is going to get to. So let's look at the second point. This, we have a Sabbath healing beginning in verse nine. So verse nine, it says, Jesus went on from there and he entered their synagogue. And the way that this is written, you are supposed to understand this is is following immediately after what just happened in the grain fields. So they were walking through the grain fields, they walk into the synagogue. This is all part of the same story. We'll see that it's just kind of an illustration of the points that Jesus was making. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, this gathering place of the Jews, and the Pharisees follow him. And then look at verse 10. There was a man there with a withered hand. And they asked Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. So their motives are very obvious. They're trying to trap Jesus so that they can condemn Jesus. And they're using this poor man. It's like bait. This man who has some sort of physical disability. Either he was born with a birth, birth defect or his arm had somehow become paralyzed. They don't care about this man. They, they just want to take advantage of his disability to make a point against Jesus. When Mark tells this story, it says that Jesus gets really angry and grieved at all of these people for their hardness of heart. But this is what they're asking Jesus. Okay, Jesus, here's someone who needs healing. But to heal him, surely, requires work. So what are you going to do? Are you going to work on the Sabbath? Look at verse 11. Jesus said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. This is what's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. It assumes as true that if any one of them had an animal fall into a pit, they would, in fact, pull it out to save its life. And then Jesus just says, okay, if that's true for an animal, how much more is it okay for a person made in the image of God? So here he's really just, it's the same argument that he was making. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. The law of God was meant for good and to do good. It was J.C. Ryle who said something like, you can't use the first table of the law to break the second table of the law. You can't use the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God, as an excuse to break the other great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that would be a really good self-diagnostic question for us. Do you claim to love God, but you're not loving others? Do you claim that you know God, you obey God, you love God, but then you look around at the people in your life and they're being hurt? They're not being helped? There's no mercy? Well, then I would ask, do you really love God? Do you really have God's heart 
the Pharisees were claiming to love God. They were claiming to be righteous through their overly strict Sabbath observances, all the while hurting people with their Sabbath regulations. But Jesus didn't come to hurt. Jesus came to heal. Jesus came to fulfill God's law by being the greatest demonstration of God's merciful heart the world had ever seen. So look at verse 13. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. To to this man with a paralyzed arm, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. Now this is another big surprise. Do you see it? It's a miracle. Don't let the miracles of Jesus get old to you. Don't let them lose their surprise, their shock value. Don't be like the people that we looked at last week that were seeing Jesus do miracles all the time and they yawned about it. This is a miracle. Imagine if you had been in this synagogue, this man with this incurable disability, and Jesus gives him this impossible command and yet also gives him the power to obey it and to heal him, and he stretches out his, man, his hand. I mean, imagine the response, what the response should have been. This healing was a demonstration of Christ's authority. Again, this is Jesus proving that he is who he says he is. This is him proving that I am the Lord's anointed. I am the one that's greater than the temple. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the son of man. He called himself that again. The son of man from Daniel chapter 7, the one to whom is given glory and dominion and a kingdom. This is the son of man who has already proven himself time and again throughout the gospel according to Matthew to have authority over sickness and over demons and over nature, even death itself. This is the Christ. This is the Christ who brings the kingdom of heaven with him wherever he goes. We've already said this, but we're going to say this again. The best way to understand what Jesus is doing when he does these miracles throughout the gospel according to Matthew is he is bringing a manifestation of what the future will be like into the present. Every time Jesus heals somebody, it's a little glimpse of what heaven is going to be like, where there is no more sickness, where there is no infirmity, there is no disability, there's nothing wrong at all. Jesus is going around making things right, and he's saying, this is the kingdom of heaven. It's arrived here in part in me, and that's what we're looking forward to. And here, in this chapter, he's connecting that to the Sabbath. This is cool, okay? I was getting really excited about this this week. When God gave the Sabbath command to Israel at Mount Sinai, it was a new thing. They didn't keep the Sabbath before that. It was a new command for them. But when God gives them the Sabbath day, this new thing, he connects it to something really old. When he gives them the fourth command, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So when God gives the Sabbath command, he ties it back to Genesis and to the work of creation and to the seventh day where God had finished all the work that he had done and behold, everything was very good. So there wasn't anything more that God needed to do. He was done. And it was this state of rest that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. 
They were at rest with God. And it was that state of rest that was lost with the fall into sin. And so when God comes and he gives Israel the Sabbath command, it's like he's restoring a little bit of what was lost at the beginning. He's giving them one-seventh of Eden back. And so the Sabbath was backwards-looking, but it was also forwards-looking. Okay, right now you're going to have one day a week where you get to rest, you get to stop, but there's coming a day in the new heavens and the new earth where it is all rest, where everything is done. You get eternal vacation. So it was looking forward to that. And here comes Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, doing heaven stuff on the Sabbath day, giving us a foretaste of that heavenly rest that we will get one day, proving that he is exactly who he says that he is, that there is the hope of eternal rest, and it's in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen? Isn't that amazing? That's what he's doing when he heals this man in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And in verse 15, we get the biggest surprise in the whole passage. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They have the Lord's Messiah right in front of them, bringing heaven down to earth in their synagogue. And they hate him for it. They want to murder him for it. Again, this goes back to what we looked at last week in chapter 11. They were the wise and understanding. They thought they got it. But when it was standing right there in front of them, it was such a threat to their own self-righteousness. It, it was such a threat to their own status quo. It was such a threat to the things that they valued that when it was right there, they hated it. They couldn't see it. So much they want to destroy Jesus. And it's from this point in the gospel according to Matthew that opposition just snowballs all the way to the cross. From this point on, you will see that everything happening around Jesus is these Pharisees increasing their opposition, their arguments against Jesus, their desire to put him to death. And that's exactly according to God's plan. Because it was actually by being destroyed, by letting himself be killed as a sacrifice by these Pharisees, that the Messiah accomplishes our ultimate healing and secures for us that eternal rest. So this is our last point. A silent servant. Beginning in verse 15, look, it says, Jesus aware of this. Aware of what? Jesus aware of the fact that they want to destroy him. That they are conspiring about how they can kill him. Jesus is aware of this. Now, let me ask you, how would you finish that sentence? How would you finish that sentence if you were Jesus? If you had the power that Jesus had? If you were in Jesus' position? Jesus, aware of this, argued his point more forcefully until they finally gave in. Jesus, aware of this, asserted his authority as the Lord's Messiah and had the Pharisees thrown into prison. 
Jesus, aware of this, used his omnipotent power as God the Son incarnate and smoked these guys with the breath of his mouth. (laughs) No. Yet another surprise. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Now, this withdrawal is not from fear. Jesus knows that his life will end at the cross. He knows what the plan is. He's not afraid. But we can understand this withdrawal as what many have referred to as the messianic secret. His telling them, hey, don't tell anybody. Keep this a secret. Keep it silent. This is all really a matter of timing. Okay, Jesus knows that he has to die at just the right time. He's got work that needs to be accomplished still, and he's not ready for it yet. And so he is telling people, keep this, keep this quiet. If you, if you talk too much, then they're going to either make me king by force or they're going to kill me early. Okay, So we have to kind of keep this on the DL until it's time. I think we can also understand Jesus' withdrawal from the Pharisees as a kind of judgment against them. He's done with them. He's done trying to persuade them. It's interesting that after this point in Matthew's gospel is when Jesus makes the shift to teaching in parables. This begins in chapter 13, that he teaches in parables so that the people without ears to hear just won't even know what he's talking about, that, that he is done trying to persuade these people. This has always been one of the most terrifying aspects of God's wrath to me, what someone has called God's passive wrath. You can be so hardened and so resistant to God's appeals to you that he does just finally say, fine, have it your way, even though that's the way that leads right to hell. That there is a day coming when Jesus does smoke sinners with the breath of his mouth. He's going to let you go there. This is why we, we hear that appeal. Don't harden your heart. Listen. Repent. But that's not the big point that Matthew is getting at. The big point that Matthew is drawing out for us is that Jesus isn't putting up the fight against these people that want to kill him. He's not arguing with them. He's not coming up with his own counter plan to win the day, no. He's not even focused on the strong and the proud at all. He withdraws from them so that he can focus more on the sick and the poor and the ones who come to him like children because he has a heart of mercy like God's heart. This is, this is all the same stuff that we saw in Matthew chapter 11. Are you seeing these parallels here? How this is all just connecting back to this great invitation that Jesus gave us at the end of Matthew 11. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Do you see it? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can Jesus give us rest? Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And what is the rest that he's offering? Well, ultimately, it's that, that eternal rest that we look forward to. Where we are with God forever and a, and a better Eden and a better paradise. But I think if we read this with Matthew 11 in mind, what Jesus is also is offering to you something that you can enjoy right now, a rest that you can have 
right now, which is a spiritual rest. Rest for your souls, that you don't have to work for your salvation. Again, the Pharisees had made the worship of God into a work, into a burden. You had to keep all the rules. You had to keep all the regulations. You had to be righteous in your own efforts. And friends, that's a burden that none of us can actually bear. I said before that God's law wasn't meant to be a burden. And that's true in one sense. This is how David can say in Psalm 19 that that the law is glorious and it's more desirable than gold and honey, that he loves God's law. And it is good, it is a gift. But in another way, the law is a burden, even a curse for imperfect sinners like me and you. The law was a burden that was meant to show us that we couldn't carry it on our own, that we can't keep it on our own, that we can't be right with God by our own effort. And when you fall into that trap of trying to bear that burden of obedience to God's law in your own strength, and your own effort, when, you, when, when that's what you're doing, when you're working, when you're trying to work your way to God, to be good enough to get back to God, there's only two outcomes that can happen. When you're trying to work your way to God, you can either become proud like a Pharisee and start to think that you're actually doing it, that you have some righteousness in yourself that, that gives you some merit before God, And that turns your heart into mercilessness. Or you can be absolutely crushed by the effort. You can realize that the burden of trying to be right with God and work your way up to God is impossible. And then you're just weary and heavy laden. You realize that you can't do it, that you have no hope in yourself. And those are the kind of people that Jesus came for the people that know that they can't do it. They know that they can't bear that burden. These are the people to whom Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What's the rest? You don't have to work anymore. Matthew interprets all of this as just one more fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's why he quotes Isaiah 42. This is actually the longest Old Testament citation in Matthew, which has a ton of Old Testament citations, but this is the longest one. Isaiah 42, this is another one of Isaiah's servant songs, these poems about what the Messiah will be like. In verse 17, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Do you hear all the echoes back to Jesus' baptism? Behold, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then then again, we see the worldwide scope of the gospel. This is for the Gentiles. This is for the whole world. This is the Messiah. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's silent. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is in fulfillment of that. Jesus' opponents want to destroy him, but God's servant, the Messiah, he doesn't even raise his voice. He doesn't argue, and he isn't harsh with those who are weak. Isaiah describes those who come to the Messiah 
confessing their sins, confessing that they can't do it on their own. He describes them as like a, a reed that's been bent, but not broken, but it's bruised. Or like a, a lamp, and, and it, the fire's about to go out. It's a weak little flame. And the Messiah takes these bruised and flickering people, and, and he doesn't break them. He doesn't quench them. He doesn't pile more commands on top of them and make them feel even worse about themselves. He's gentle with them. He's lowly with them. He's merciful with them. He loves them like God loves us. And it's the same silent servant in Isaiah 42 that is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who fulfilled God's law by obeying it perfectly. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He won't break a bruised reed, but he will be crushed himself for your sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, rest, and with his wounds we are healed. Christ took our sin and disobedience onto himself, allowing himself to be destroyed by those Pharisees so that he could do the work that you could never do to fulfill the law of God. And if we believe in Jesus as the Messiah, if we believe in the Son of Man, the suffering servant, if we receive him as the Lord of the Sabbath, you can have rest for your soul right now because the work is finished There is nothing that you owe to God. Jesus has done it all for you. And so you can have rest for your souls. Remember that I said the Sabbath for Israel was an expression of trust, of faith. That they had to let go of their efforts and trust that God would provide for them, that God would work for them. Well, he has, church. He has worked for us in Jesus. He's worked for you. And all you have to do if you have not received this yet is to hear this impossible command from our Messiah. Reach out your hand. Take and receive this free gift of grace, this mercy from the Lord of the Sabbath, and you will have rest. So I'll conclude with this passage from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, which just interprets all of this so clearly for us. In Hebrews chapter four, it says, so then, church, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then he encourages us, let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Strive, to enter rest. What's the striving we do? Believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you for the gift of rest in Jesus that none of us could be good enough, righteous enough to enter into that eternal rest that we so long for. None of us can have that on our own, but you have brought it down to us in Christ. God, I pray that no one here would harden their hearts, 
that they would hear and believe and be saved. And for all of us, Lord, who have already entered into your rest, who have already confessed that you have done all the work for us, Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to strive, to keep on believing so that we can have that Sabbath rest that still remains. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.